0: Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week we gather on the traditional, ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray and engage with Scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of Scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out UHail.net for a zoom link and more information. And the gospel reading is from John 2 verses 1 to 12. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days the word of God.
1: Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Holy God, we give you thanks and praise for this day and for this chance to be together and to uh, sit with one another under your word, and we pray that you'd help us to hear it well today uh, so that we can make you known better in this world through our lives and through our obedience. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds that they'd be acceptable in your sight, and we ask it in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So there's this kind of weird thing that happens at uh, at the beginning of today's gospel reading where John says that on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And, and the pro- that's not particularly strange, but the problem is that John has begun the, the previous three stories with the phrase the next day, which means that this cannot possibly be the third day. By my count, it's at least the fifth day in John's tale. So I gotta wonder what's going on, right? And one possibility is that what he means is it's the third day of the week, uh, which actually makes some sense. Because apparently, I I read this on the Internet, so it must be true. Uh, For much of Jewish history, the third day of the week was considered a particularly desirable day to get married. Because in the book of Genesis, if you go check out the first chapter of Genesis in the creation story, there's this, uh, this pattern that repeats through the whole story. And God saw that it was good. At the end of every day, it says God saw that it was good. Uh, except for the third day on the third day God says God saw that it was good twice. God seems to be particularly pleased with what God made on the third day. and so this seemed like a good day uh, to get married. So John could be telling us simply that the wedding happened on a Tuesday uh, like weddings often did and that that could account for his accounting mistake, right Maybe that's why he got the number of days in his story confused. Uh, this is probably the most reasonable and rational explanation. But the thing is that if you've ever read the Gospel of John, especially alongside the other Gospels, you know that he's not often worried about reason and ration. There are more important things going on for John. Uh, he's quite happy to mix things up to make a point. And, and, and it's what, while it's possible that he's just wishing this couple of good luck in their marriage by noting that they got hitched on the right day, that doesn't seem kind of like John's style. Uh, Details matter to John, but not for the sake of social custom. They matter only in so far as they point us deeper, point us towards more about Jesus. And I think that that's what's really going on here, right? By the the time that John's writing his gospel late in the first century, lots of Christian teaching and traditions been developed and established, and there's no way that John could write a phrase like on the third day, without knowing that the ears of any followers of Jesus around would perk up. right? John's got to know that most people who read and hear his gospel will know that Jesus suffered and died, and on the third day he rose again. This is Christianity 101. Jesus explains this several times in all of the other gospels. And even though he doesn't say this exact thing in John's gospel, I don't think that John could possibly write on the third day without paying us, expecting us to pay some extra attention. It's like a, it comes like a trumpet blast, right? It's like, heads up, this is a resurrection story, right? This is a kingdom of God story right out of the gospel gate. This is the sort of thing that Jesus, crucified and risen, will be about, right? I I think what I think John is saying to any followers of Jesus, watch and learn, pay attention. This is the sort of thing that Jesus will get you into. I mean, notice how much of the story is really about the disciples, right? Who, Who just started following him, but here they're with him, they watch him, they believe in him, and then they go with him when he goes to the next place. This is a story about discipleship, about what it means to be in league with Jesus, what it means to pay attention to who he is and what he does, and then go and do that stuff. I mean, sure, this this story is about a miracle, absolutely. It's a story that tells us that you know Dionysius, the Greek god of wine, has nothing on Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth. It's a story that reveals Jesus' unexpected glory for sure. But it's also a story that helps us learn what it means to be a resurrection people, a kingdom of God people, a people living and moving and having our being in the good and very good will and way of Jesus. On the third day, there was a wedding. Heads up, this is a resurrection story. And what does it tell us about being a resurrection people? What does it tell us about this resurrection world that God is working in and through those of us who claim the name of Jesus? I I see at least four things. I see compassion and dignity, extravagance and beauty. You may see others, but I see compassion, dignity, extravagance and beauty. This story tells us that the way of Jesus is the way of compassion, sometimes even when we don't really feel like it now I, I think the interaction between jesus and his and mary is pretty funny there though he really shouldn't talk to his mom that way i gotta say you know, uh, generally speaking john is not very shy about jesus divine nature right right from the get-go he says this is the word who was with god and was god in the beginning uh, but this seems to be a particularly kind of human moment right the word who was god and was with god became flesh and got kind of mouthy with his mom. You know, but Mary, Mary lets it slide. She knows what's up, even if even if he needs a reminder. She knows what it means to say not my will but yours. What it means to step up and let God do what God's going to do in real time, and she seems to know that He knows it too. Uh, but he says, you know, the the wine isn't my problem, Mom, and it's not your problem either. And, and this this story always kind of reminds me of this time that my family was in New York City together, and my mom saw this woman who was carrying something quite heavy, which turned out to be a a piano keyboard. Uh, She was lugging this thing and apparently had a ways to go. And instead of ignoring her like a normal person, my mom volunteered me and Aiden to help her carry it across the city, (laughs) right? I'm delighted to know that Jesus had no more power to deny his mom than than we did, right? He says, the wine isn't my problem, mom, and it's not your problem either, And then she smiles and turns to the servants and speaks as though the word that was with God and was God and is God in the flesh isn't standing right there at all, as if to say, boy, I changed your diapers and you're going to do what I have to say, which uh, is pretty awesome if you think about it. But of course, the point isn't the argument between mother and son. The point is that the wine has run out and the party isn't over yet right? It's an embarrassment, at least for the the groom's family who's throwing the wedding. And it can't be much better for the bride's family if this is a sign of things to come. And Mary isn't going to sit around and and let her neighbors suffer embarrassment, not when she knows there's something that she can do about it. And she knows that her boy isn't going to be able to do nothing about it either, even if he doesn't think it's the right time for miracles. Speaking of which, it's a curious thing that Jesus says to Mary here, that my time has not yet come. it's not entirely clear what he means. And I'm sure there are more theological and profound answers than than the one I'm about to give. But I can't help but think that John wants us to to see that as disciples of Jesus, when we're about the kingdom of God, when we're concerned with the world as God will have it, when we're in step with Jesus, our plans don't amount to much. You know, our expected timing for things is a secondary concern. And if it's true for him, it's got to be true for us. As followers of Jesus, what matters is what matters to God, which is whatever is happening right in front of us, whether it's convenient or not. And the fact is that compassion might always be inconvenient. It's it's always costly in some way or another, whether it's in money or time or our egos or our plans but but what if what what a wild thing if this story tells us that ours is the god who will be inconvenienced for the sake of compassion i think that's amazing and in fact it's a pretty consistent pattern in jesus life right all of the gospels tell us of times when he wanted to go do something else when he just wanted to be left alone to pray by himself when he wanted to go on retreat with his friends He's already on the way to help somebody and heal somebody. And there's some poor soul tugging at his coat. And compassion compels him to change his plans. You know, when we're in step with Jesus, compassion will win out every time. And we see that compassion and dignity go hand in hand. I mean, the fact that the wine has run out is a big deal. Why else would Mary bother to get involved? You know, it's sort of shameful evidence that somebody can't afford what they're supposed to be able to afford. This will cast a shadow over the marriage, over the family. I mean, if you've ever lived in a small town, you know how a faux pas like this can linger. Folks are going to talk, right? The miracle shows Jesus' power for sure, but more importantly, I think it shows his commitment to his neighbor's dignity. And you know that at some point this is more about them than him because There's no big announcement about what's gone on. Nobody corrects the chief steward to tell him that actually it wasn't the bride's choice to save the best for last. This was all Jesus. You know, in the end, only a handful of servants who seem to forget pretty quickly and his disciples know that anything's gone on. You know, the story tells us that if we're going to get in on what Jesus is about, then we're going to be about the dignity of others. And we're going to care about people's dignity without any fanfare. You know, we don't need our names on a plaque. We don't even need to be thanked properly. We we, we care about the dignity of others because God cares about the dignity of others. And we don't need any other reason or reward. You know, we delight to see people cared for because ours is the God who says, cast your cares upon me because I care for you. And not just a little bit, right? God's not just a little bit fond of us. God is a lot fond of us. The extravagance of this miracle is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> you know. Not only is the wine the good stuff, but there's a whole bunch of it, right? Something on the order of 180 gallons, which I did the math for you, it's 681 liters or so, <laughs> uh, which is a heavenly amount of wine, my goodness. This party could go on for a while. And although I don't think we should probably get too excited about the overconsumption of wine, it's, it's worth remembering that the miracle happens because the wine ran out, because the guests drank it all, right? They don't need more wine, but they get it anyways, which means that at a certain point, I think this is not really about wine, it's about grace. Now, I'm fine with the miracle, but but I think this is about grace. This is about more than we can ask for or imagine grace, This is the sort of thing that just happens when Jesus is around. A a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the, the letter to the Ephesians, where in the first chapter, Paul talks about the fact that God's grace has been lavished on us in the beloved. God's grace has been lavished on us in Jesus. This party just got lavish, right? It's extravagant. Probably 20 to 30 gallons of wine would have cut it. But no, let's do all six jars just in case. You now too often i think we're 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 tempted to live out of postures of scarcity right we worry that there won't be enough of one thing or another we get stingy and anxious and that might be about physical things about money and food and stuff but it might also be we can be stingy with things like love and forgiveness and joy things we can't touch or see but are every bit as real and which we can be every bit as selfish And this story undermines any kind of cultural inclination to assume that there won't be enough. It undermines our instincts, as Eric prayed, to hoard and keep and grab. In the company of Jesus, there will be abundance of what's needful. In the company of Jesus, there will be an abundance of what's needful. And sometimes that will be because Jesus-bearing folks will be consumed by a holy desire for compassion and dignity, And those who have will give so that those who don't have can get. And sometimes that's miracle enough. And sometimes it'll be because at the end of our rope, when the wine has run out, we fall on our knees in front of the one who laughs with joy as he lavishes his new wine grace upon us. One jar will be enough, but let's do all six anyways and make it the good stuff, <laughs> right? I love that in step with Jesus, we're about the good stuff. Resurrection people are about the good stuff, and I don't mean that we should trend towards decadence. I don't mean that loving Jesus will make us invariably materially rich or even especially happy. In fact, downward mobility is always a possibility with Jesus. There's no resurrection with the cross, or without the cross. We need to know that Sometimes what's foolish and undesirable in the world is the strange way that God gets what God wants. But we can also fall into the trap of believing that the way of Jesus requires us to be unwilling to delight, uh, to shun beauty, to steer clear of pleasure. I I once read of a writer who described her austere Presbyterian father as someone who, in his long life, never once committed a pleasure. (laughs) Uh, I think that's a kind of a common. Uh, a caricature of church folks. But that doesn't feel much like the way that inspires the spiritual fruit of joy, right? It doesn't feel coherent with the God who sighs with delight over this world. It doesn't jive with the one who, if he's going to make wine, is going to make the best wine. It's going to be the good stuff. Now I read once about a, a, <clears throat> a chef who spent her weekday evenings uh, plating pieces of wildly expensive meat for people who like to spend money for the sake of spending money. But then on the weekends, she spent time with this Christian community in one of the poorest zip codes in in the United States in Camden, New Jersey, making steak and lobster and perfectly cooked veggies with rich and delicious sauces for the poor and the homeless who couldn't pay anything because they deserve delicious and delightful things too. So, you know, of course, Jesus calls us to pick up our crosses and deny ourselves for the sake of the world. There's no getting around that. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But the only people here, biblically speaking, who end up on crosses, and this is important, the only people who end up on crosses are folks counted as rebels by the keepers of the way things are. And sometimes being a rebel for Jesus means going against the grain of scarcity. It means tasting and seeing that God is good when the gods of this world are fearsome and fickle. It means letting our tables and our lives be evidence that God loves good and beautiful things, that God is prodigal with good and beautiful things, and created us for goodness and for beauty. Now, one of the best pastors and preachers I I've ever known, says that it's a sin to drink cheap whiskey. And, you know, he might be right. So this is a story about a miracle for sure. But more, this is a resurrection story that courses with compassion and dignity and extravagance and beauty. It gives us a glimpse of the world that God is working in and through Jesus and in and through those of us who bear his name. It calls to mind the the prophet Isaiah who sings of the day when God gets the world God wants and we will stream from every corner of the earth to a banquet laden with uh, the best food and wine that money can't buy. That's the vision. That's a resurrection world. And I want to finish by paying attention to the fact that that John shows us uh, this resurrection reality right in the midst of some pretty ordinary stuff. You know, a marriage, some clay pots, some water and wine. And the disciples perceive Jesus' glory, but it's a it's a pretty quiet revelation. And you know, after it all, Jesus and his family uh, and friends go to Caper- Capernaum for a couple of days, uh, like nothing much happened. <laughs> That's it. It's hard to imagine kind of a more anticlimactic revelation of divine glory. And yet I think that's kind of part of the point. You know, the world that God is working, this world that teems with compassion and dignity and extravagant beauty is not just for somewhere else, some other time, someday in the distant future. It's for here and now. And we who bear the name of Jesus are called to participate in this stuff here and now. Jesus will say later in the gospel, that those who love him will do what he does and heaven help us even greater things. And of course, I don't know anyone who can literally turn water into wine, but if you can, or you know somebody, please stay after church. i have a business proposition for you. <laughs> but you know, once we have seen that this is the sort of thing that God is about, let's don't pretend to, that it's otherwise. Let, let's keep step with Jesus. Let's go into this week and into this world, eager to be agents of compassion and dignity, bearers of extravagant beauty, wherever we go, in all that we do and say. You know, as we go into our quiet time right now, you may ask God where you might do some uh, uh, your, of your own winemaking magic. <laughs> you know, or perhaps you're arriving in a space where all the wine has run out. And what you need is god's lavish extravagant grace and goodness And maybe take this time and ask and receive ask and receive let god overflow your cup so that it might overflow into the lives of others because we have this god we are called by this god who by the power at work within us the same power that raised jesus christ from the dead is able to do abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine in our lives and in this world. And so to God be the glory in Christ Jesus and in the church, now and forever. Amen.